we're dealing with cock punch. Cock punch. All right. I bet you most people aren't looking at my face if they're watching the video right now. Mm -hmm. They're kind of looking in this general region. So they're looking at your rooster. That's right. This is the weekly link where each week Jason Brenizer, that's me, and Mark Cruz, my business partner, share what grabbed our attention, what slapped us across the face, what bowled us over, and what made us pause and rethink our assumptions in the world of blockchain and all things on the road to Web3. Now, sometimes you'll hear us talk about the Phenomenal Future Project and Blockmark, two aligned long-term projects we have going on, and Samato, our first gamified art series, which all play in the NFT and smart contract arena. And along the way, you'll get a behind-the-scenes look at our triumphs and our struggles as we explore this new decentralized world of opportunity. Now, I like to say that there's an infinite onion to peel, but we've got the passion and perseverance to take it one layer at a time. Welcome to the Weekly Link. So you are on the road. You are doing blockchain on the go. What? Uh, that's, that's right. Yeah. And and in fact, you you have a uh, a date with a, a mint that you need to move some funds around. So why don't you tell us, Jason? How does one go about preparing their wallet for a cock punch? Okay, so I I am. I'm resistant to this kind of thing, right? I mean, we've, I've been in crypto for a little while, and yet when it comes to moving funds around, I still, I still have um, trepidation every time, just wanting to make sure that am I really sending it to the right address and that whole kind of thing. So um, I, I just I have to throw that out there because it's real, right? I mean, this is all new for all of us, and mm-hmm. as you know, I'm I'm still kind of a newbie when it comes to this kind of thing. Uh, these people moving around, you know, millions of dollars willy nilly. Um, I mean, I, I, we're talking about 0.3 ETH for this for this NFT mint, and yet I'm I'm still like uh, kind of have some resistance to it. So um, for me, uh, you know, I have a Coinbase account where I have I have some funds. Um, and, and, and so I, I'm, I'm going to use the Coinbase wallet in this case. We talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, it's, it's a little bit easier to transfer because it's kind of in the same ecosystem. Um, but I also have a MetaMask wallet for other purposes and stuff. And so, but yeah, every time I do this, and it's not that often, um, moving things around. Uh, yeah, I, I, I always think I'm going to do something wrong. And so I imagine that this is going to be a kind of a, a wall for a lot of people to jump into crypto and and it like the people who have already adopted it are the early adopters. So the kind of people that, that uh, are gung ho and and bullish on the whole thing. Um, And so now the next wave of people, it becomes, uh, um, it becomes a lot of education and handholding to make people feel comfortable with this new thing. But I felt the same way when, when they first started asking for credit card purchase purchases on the internet, mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but yeah, like very similar. I never, yeah. I never was like, put my credit card on the internet where data moves around so easily that, uh, yeah. And, and yeah. It, I mean, you know, databases get breached all the time and stuff. Right. So this isn't the dangers of having your data out there isn't new either. Uh, and yet, um, 
I'm still old school in so many ways. Look, I remember the days when you could, when you had the credit card and you were like driving cross country and you were at some gas station in the middle of nowhere. And there was still like, had the triplicate carbon copy. Yeah. <laughs> we're dealing with cock punch. Cock punch. All right. What were there were two different lists? What was mm-hmm. the deal? Yeah. There's an allow list. list which would be like a guest list. Then there's a wait list. And so the allow list has a one hour block to buy between 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. Pacific time. And then the wait list uh, has another list of people that can purchase between 11 a.m. and 12 p.m. Pacific time. And then it opens to the general public and the general public can start minting at noon Pacific time. And all of that is determined by the wallet ID. And so individuals will have had to register their wallet public key. This is a a long string of characters and and numbers that is related to, but can't be decoded into your private key, which allows you to sign transactions and actually conduct commerce. The public key is like, you know, it's like your, your public facing persona. It's not your password or your public facing name, your username almost. Um, And so these wallet IDs, these public IDs uh, had been submitted through various methods. I'm I'm assuming Uh, I wasn't able to find a way to get onto the allow or the wait list. Uh, But there's some method by which Tim collected these wallet addresses, uh, these public wallet addresses. And when you connect your wallet, the the Web3 code on his Mint page automatically recognizes, oh, you're in this allow list or you're in this wait list or you're not. And so. For my screen, now that I've connected my wallet, I actually see the timer for my particular situation, which is mint in two hours, 44 minutes, as opposed mm-hmm. to if I were in the allow list, it would say mint in 44 minutes. And if I were on the wait list, it would say mint in one hour, 44 minutes. And so this is some practical demonstration of the ability to uh, to um benefit your fans first benefit your raving fans first right right the sad thing is is i know you're a tim ferris raving fan mm-hmm. and so am i <laughs> and yet you know it, it's not like he had this on the the cock punch website right um there's very little information there in fact and <clears throat> i i had been in the last week on and off looking at his posts on twitter because mm-hmm. he I, I knew that was a space where he was going to be um you know, delivering up-to-date information. And yet I, I didn't see anything there. It sounds like you didn't see anything there. Um, right. I mean, it's easy to miss Twitter posts and it's hard to go back through everything, surely. But um, it makes me wonder how much of a raving fan <laughs> you, you had to be. Like, what were the other sources? Maybe he has a Discord channel that I don't know about or something mm-hmm. like that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming the same as well. It's it's through his other channels, either through his Timmed Up blog or through Twitter DM or or other. But I went through the whole Cockpunch uh, Twitter feed, uh, you know, clicked on their user and went through all of their past tweets and didn't see. I'll say I didn't go through the fine tooth comb and Tim likes to hide things. Um, yeah. So maybe I'm not raving enough, but I didn't see any obvious uh, click here to join the allow list or wait list. So. This is the fun thing about, you know, launching NFTs. I think there's this inherent ability to build buzz on something new. He, maybe it was in the last month, he started talking about this project 
up, up to that point for an entire year or more that he was working on it. He kind of kept it under wraps publicly. Um, yep. And so, you know, now he has a huge platform with his podcast and with being a guest on other people's giant podcasts. Like that gives him an opportunity to, to basically just make an announcement once or twice, which he did on the proof uh, podcast and um, bankless is probably and wellness is own. I'm sure uh, that's enough, right? How many, how many listeners does he have that subscribe to his podcast? It's hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Mm-hmm. Or that are on his email list. Certainly, he has millions on his email list. Like he's of podcasters, he's one of the biggest out there, right? Maybe not quite as big as Joe Rogan, but he's yeah. he's close. He's top tier, and he's been doing it a long time over <clears> ten <throat> years. In fact, his first podcast, I was I was thinking about this. Uh, the first podcast he released was a podcast with Kevin Rose. Tim oh wow! Podcast number one was Kevin Rose. If I okay. Then that's appropriate to do this project that that he obviously has fallen in love with and and uh, is passionate about with Kevin. That's great. Yeah, for sure. And I, I I blame Kevin for my subsequent obsession with automatic watches. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> there was some podcasts early early on random shows that they did where uh, uh, Kevin Rose went deep into Hodinky and into automatic watches and and that started a, a rather small but expensive obsession automatic watches like look we're talking watch on wristband now yeah watch on wrist that's purely mechanical no electronics no no battery no uh it works purely as watchmakers have made them for the last 200 years whatever it is so you're a horologist oh is that the is that the term i believe the term someone who's interested in timepieces Mm. Is a horologist, H O R O. Yeah. Nice. Um, yeah. Why I, why I know that, I don't know. That was um, me. I was a horologist, but I was a I was a, a knockoff horologist because I only had budget for the incredibly good replica watches that they sold at Binton Market in Vietnam. I didn't have uh, the the 10K for the the Rolex Submariner, but your time your time is coming. But I had I had three hundred dollars for a really yeah. really good knockoff of a Rolex Submariner. <laughs> so this is this is actually really cool because um, the mentality that you have when it comes to collecting something that is intricate um, that a, a craftsperson has you know put their stamp on mm-hmm. that. Um, isn't necessarily it's not necessary in your life obviously your your uh smartphone is going to keep time just fine but uh you appreciate quality work and the the time that someone puts into something uh, that makes it unique so that physical product desire for that kind of thing um and to have that connection to the person who's who's creating it that naturally translates into NFTs, right? It's sure. the same mentality. Yeah. Yeah. Which is one of the reasons I appreciate the, the cock punch launch so much is even though Tim's given no indication as to the utility of the NFT, I can appreciate the lore, the time, the craftsmanship that's gone into creating the digital world of cock punch. 
Mm-hmm. And I love the fucking name. I mean, come on. Ah, yeah. Well, how can you? How can you not? It is. It is sticky. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Maybe maybe we shouldn't go there. <laughs> that's that's. Uh, I think that's cock fellatio, not cock punching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little different. A little different. Yeah. <laughs> this this talking about lore it it puts me right into the space that I've been thinking about. So I went to this coffee shop here in Franklin, Tennessee, where I, I happen to be right now for a couple of weeks. Like you said, I'm, I'm traveling and yet I brought some, I brought some lights with me. You can see that's, you know, yeah. <laughs> right. I, I was able to like with these led lights and everything, I'm able to set stuff up um, easily while traveling, which is cool and still have okay quality video. I'm using my phone, not my awesome camera, but still, um, that's great. I went to this coffee shop the other day. I took my notebooks and I was going through, oh, you got your light too. Um, the the Samuto um, story world. I was going back through a whole bunch of my notes and then um, writing some new ideas that were coming up, which is really cool. I actually came up with, um, in addition to our original Samuto art um, pieces, kind of the abstract art that uh, I had been working on, I came up with another 10 subcategories of mm-hmm. NFTs to be able to, to continue releasing stuff in the Samato story world. So I'm, I'm, I'm super, super excited about like, wait a minute. Of course, I'm writing um, these stories, um, initially starting with five short stories to follow five different characters in, this, in the Samato story world, some of these warriors. And... Um, it's like, well, we don't have like full fledged real photorealistic or, you know, hyper realistic, if you want to call it that, um, character artwork. Well, that would be an amazing thing to do as a secondary series of these characters in different scenes in the story. Um, and maybe some of the, um, villains or antagonists or other tangential characters as well, um, as a, as another way to collaborate with an artist that would do something that I, I personally wouldn't do that style of art, mm-hmm. but it would be great to work with some people who do that. So it was just one little thing, you know, um, there are also different schools of fighting styles for the, uh, the Samato warriors. And uh, I thought it would be interesting to do a little series on the actual locations of where those schools are um, mm-hmm. throughout the solar system. Mm-hmm. and um, see what their little sanctuaries are like. So <clears throat> the, the, the totem, you know, actual drawings of the totems that show like the entry point to the sanctuaries and things like that, as mm-hmm. well as maybe seeing what's going on inside um, different weapons that they use. Like all this wonderful stuff just was starting to, to bubble up. I'm, I'm so excited. We're like, we're just right at the surface by creating a deeper story. We're like what Tim is doing with Cock Punch it, it's not just here's some pretty art. Mm-hmm. Like when you build story uh, around this art, it allows you to go so much deeper over time to take an audience on a journey with you. So like that's. You sound giddy, man. You sound really excited. I see, I see like beams coming off of you. Yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think, um, you know, it's been a while since I've been, I've been writing like, um, you know, we were so focused on on some tech stuff. And then before that, of course, the, the brick and mortar business that I had was taking all my time. 
yeah, I, I find, I think I have some emotional um, space and freedom and, and uh, that passion is being rekindled. So yeah, super, super excited about what we're up to. Fantastic. Can't wait to see it. Um, at least if I can get a rough draft of one of the stories to you, that would be fantastic. <laughs> Sweet. Sweet. Well, you've been digging into that. I've been digging into this uh, thing you introduced me to called GitHub Copilot. Oh, cool. Um, okay. Tell me about it. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I only read just like a very simple article and yeah. thought that it would be applicable to what we're up to, especially what, you know, your focus is. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I've, I've done some, some digging on what it is and, and how to use it. Uh, my plan for today is to actually uh, subscribe and integrate it to my, my VS code. But the few, uh, the couple of videos I watched on the practical application of it look really impressive. There's, you know, the, at a certain time or a certain point in your career as a software developer, you start to realize that you are more of an orchestrator of things that have been done before. And you're orchestrating them into a very specific tailored, um, concert piece or you know orchestral performance so to speak but you're you're creating this this experience you're creating this interface you're creating this product uh, out of all of these little components that that have been done before out of the the violins the violas the cellos uh, and maybe there's some innovation maybe there's some new innovative pieces but even the innovation pieces within the context of creating a product the the innovation piece is you know it, it's it's a unique brain. It's the unique character of the the players, but all of the UI, all of the ability for another person to interface with it, all of the ability for it to interface with other programs and to interface with other other web services is via protocols that have been well documented, established, and programmed. And it's like my spell, myself. I've I've written in a number of coding languages. My first one was Perl. I coded in in Perl for for the you know two thousand to. 2000, I don't know, five, eight, some, and uh, I've got an intimate uh, remembrance of Perl. But then after coding in Perl for a long time, I switched and, and did some coding in C Sharp, did some coding in Java, and then started doing some coding in PHP and wrote a lot in PHP. I probably got, you know, 500 to 1000 hours of, of PHP development time. And when I would go back and try to program Perl after being in the PHP mind space for, for a year or two, because I needed to do something that I knew Perl was uniquely adept at, um, I would have to go back and look up, oh, how do I do this in Perl? Because there are syntactical differences between Perl and, and, and PHP. And then, you know, after doing Perl and PHP, I did some Ruby on Rails, not enough, uh, maybe 10 hours in Ruby on Rails just to mess around. Uh, and then, uh, and then I started doing Python programming. We had some uh, some projects that came up in 2014, 2015 that needed uh, coding in R. R is a kind of a unique language slash UI. It's programmatic, almost like MATLAB. Uh, and then out of R came uh, my introduction to Python and pandas, pandas and numpy. And it, uh, you know, that spawned another 100 hours to 500 hours of coding in Python. Uh, the stuff that we started doing recently, uh, I took some of the images that you had provided and I looked into the Python implementation of the OpenCV library and using OpenCV with Python to do some, you know, some image tricks, do some randomized backgrounds and randomized uh, shape creation, randomized um, uh, color adjustment uh, using the OpenCV library. And even for that, I 
I have an understanding of the architecture, where the main is, where the functions go, declaring a class, importing a class, making, uh, doing proper documentation to make sure that it's readable. All, all of that practice is common among every language. The thing that's different are some of the syntactical pieces, like Python's a very minimalist. There's no open closed brackets, uh, curly braces. Uh, there's no semicolons at the end of the line. It's a very clean looking uh, language where white space matters, where in a lot of other languages, white space doesn't matter. Uh, and by white space, I mean the amount of space between your margin and where you start typing. Mm-hmm. That that matters as far as your your loops and and where you do indentation of of uh, of code. And so when I started digging through GitHub Copilot, the utility of it was immediately apparent because the implementation of it within VS Code, as an example, is with the extension active as you start typing into a comment line, what it is that you want and you hit next line, it'll present a um, a uh, snippet of code that does what you've described in plain English terms in the in the comment line. And then you have the ability to click into that and look at, okay, what are the top 10 things that match this? So maybe the one it comes up with isn't right. There's, you know, 10 other examples. And it's pulling all this from the uh, millions, billions of lines of code within GitHub that GitHub has been compiling for, you know, over a decade. I mean, I've had a GitHub account for over a decade. Mm-hmm. Um and I realized the just absolute beauty of calling it a co-pilot because as a developer, I'm trying to string together what needs to be done for the customer or for myself or for the project. But the syntax of it, until I've been coding in a language and I've done the same type of code for you know a dozen or more hours, that code's not coming off the top of my head. Like it's not. I don't have an encyclopedia of code in my head to to reference. I'm often referencing uh, Substack. I'm or not Substack. Uh, source not SourceForge. What is it? Stack Stack. Um, doesn't matter. I'm I'm often often referencing the most popular uh, uh, web blog. You know, here's my problem. Give me an answer. Uh, source that's been around for also over a decade. That's been around forever. What is in my head is how objects are interrelated, what object-oriented yeah. program looks programming looks like, what I need to make a class of, what that class's parameters should be, uh, where I need to do an asynchronous uh, loop, where I need to do tries and catches, where I need to do uh, error catching. All of this I have in my head because fundamentally, they're the same in every language. Where I get mixed up is when I go to Mexico and I'm trying to speak Spanish and all I can think of is Japanese. Like where I get mixed up is when I'm sitting down to code Python and I've got JavaScript or PHP uh, conventions that are coming to me as far as how you would do a for versus a for each versus a for this in that. Like there's there's understanding the concept and then there's the syntax. And so this, this, this synergy between the developer that has the mindset of the architecture and the co-pilot that has the understanding of the exact syntax, I see as being super powerful because then it allows for the, the, the acting out of the, the, the uh, architecture of a program from the standpoint of the meta level. So now you are at the meta level providing the, uh, the actual architecture of where things go, how they plug in, what information you want to pull from a web service uh, JSON response. Um, and the syntax is being handled by your co-pilot. I think it's brilliant. I'm looking forward to um, 
to signing up for their 60 day trial and and uh, good god if i were if i were coding for a career like if that if i were a contract coder right now fucking a hundred dollars a a year yeah <laughs> worthwhile like yeah because it's it's like having a, a person right next to you who has the best uh uh memory mm-hmm. to be able to look up like it it's looking at the code that you're writing and going oh I'm, i think i know where he's going with this let me let me flip through all of these resources here and go oh here here you go yeah. here's you're you're on that spot right now where i know you were going to ask me this question like it's yep. It's it's that kind of a, a system or a whole team of people working for you to be able to just have that answer at your fingertips mm-hmm. and not have to because this is when I read the article I was thinking about this right I mean it's been a long long time since I've coded mm-hmm. but just the the capability of this made me think shit I could even maybe get back into it right mm-hmm. um, that 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 you you know you've got your higher level work that you need to be thinking through um, um, uh, 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 when you're coding and if you get if you bog down and have to go search for the minutia of you know wait where do these brackets go and how many inputs and output variables are are within this function um, uh, you know or object it's like that it's the wrong thinking that's mm-hmm. that's like um, you know when I'm writing a, a novel or a story it's like the the writer and the editor are two different brains and if you keep engaging the editor you can't be creative in your writing mm-hmm. you're constantly refining a sentence when you really just need to be working on the the overall scope of of a chapter or something like that and and this is to me very similar it's like yeah. it's like it takes that that uh, nuts and bolts type of thinking out so you can have a higher level thinking and maintain that flow Mm-hmm. which is what a lot of the problem is. Every time you stop to go look something up on one of these websites for, for, you know, appropriate syntax, um, yep. it, it, you know, it takes you out of it. It takes you another 20 minutes just to kind of get back into wait. Where was I going with this? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Never mind the, the cost in time and business to, <clears throat> uh, having either compile errors or having, you know, uh, uh, test check errors. I mean, in, under the, the paradigm of doing continuous integration where your your source code check-ins are are automatically being compiled and and um pushed into a sandbox for for acceptance testing prior to going going to production there's so much value in having the first rattle out of the box be right there's there was a movement in silicon valley when i was still living there of what's called pair programming pair programming is where you take two high dollar engineers and instead of having two high dollar engineers work on two different code bases or maybe the same code base, sorry, but two different code sections, mm-hmm. they actually took those two engineers, they sat them at the same computer and they would alternate who has, you know, who has keyboard mouse and who doesn't, but they would sit them at the same computer because just having another engineer sit there and watch you write code, they will find issues that you as the developer don't see. And yeah. It doesn't even have to be a super talented engineer uh, that's that's fully up to date. It can be a really good engineer that hasn't coded in ten years. I mean, you and I did some some pair programming when I was right. doing the the Python image manipulation, and you would be like, "Well, hey, shouldn't that variable be that?" Even not knowing the Python syntax, you can see 
where I'm too quick with my fingers or I'm, you know, I'm thinking of something while typing something else and I type out the wrong variable name that has, has been seen to be so effective that companies in Silicon Valley were paying for two engineers to sit at the same screen, keyboard, mouse, and work on the same piece of code at the same time, just because eminently when it comes to delivering product correctly at the end of the day, because that was that was kind of the target is, is we want new release every day or we want new release every week. We want continuous integration of, of features. Um, there was so much more focus put on uh, writing test cases, which are important, which is like automated testing that runs when you run your code or when you compile or they're run at the, the continuous integration machine that DevOps is managing. Um, and they implemented this whole idea of pair programming. Well, this GitHub Copilot, I mean, this is care. This is pair programming on crack. Like this is, this is the most ultimate fucking, you know, data from Star Trek next generation sitting there as your pair programmer, like injecting with his mind, the actual typed out code into your IDE in real time. It's, um, it's, it's really, really powerful. I'm, I'm really excited to, to actually, uh, take it and apply it. And actually maybe the first thing I'll apply it to is, is, uh, see if I can put in some of those, those slider bars on the, the open CV stuff for, uh, for Python. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, I figured, I figured you would get jazzed about the concept. So I'm glad that you're moving forward with it. And I didn't realize it was so inexpensive too. That's, that's awesome. And it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's a total network effect, right? Cause there's so much GitHub open source, you know, there's so much, data for for this ai to draw from and to learn from that it's only going to get stronger going forward from here but it already has such a massive um learning data set mm-hmm. that it it probably is very useful already even yeah. though it's fairly new yeah. yeah the only thing i'm i'm uh, i haven't dug into is licensing so it's pulling from code that's been uploaded by millions of people over the course of the past decade plus i'm not sure how licensing is going to I know how licensing works on individual projects. When you're when you set up a repository, GitHub even has a list of like the ten most commonly applied licenses. You know, you've got your your GNU, your or your GPL, your GPL 2.0, your or your GNU uh, 2.0, your your Apache, your MIT, your uh, all your various uh, licensing. And um, and so within those, it's really clear. From the standpoint of using this Dali 2-like engine that's doing, you know, uh, uh, text and intent recognition, recognizing the your your typed English words and their intent and translating that into code, um, I'm sure that's got some sort of cost. I don't know what the licensing is there. And the code that it's pulling from, I haven't looked into the licensing there. But what yeah. I can tell you as a developer, it's it's really common to use other people's work. It's a very open community in that respect. Um, and it's also really common for, um, especially if you go public or if you sell your company to a public company, um, part of due diligence, they do run through, there's, there's companies like black duck that do code analysis and they do full code syntax matching to all of the various repositories that, that exist in the world. And they'll find, uh, you know, licensing on code snippets that you use. And uh, the the purpose there being to make sure that, you know, where commerce is done, uh, licensing is upheld and the, the spirit of the community is upheld. And so if you use, yeah. you know, uh, Apache or GNU licensed code that says that if you use this, you need to 
to publish your own source code. Well, that's that's what you end up. That's what you got to do. That's part of the. That's part. Did of the, you part did of you process. go through something like that with uh, with yeah the, sure. the vestiture of, of vigilant yeah yeah for sure yeah so we had we had a long um uh, really uh, brutal <laughs> uh, many hours a day due diligence uh, for about three months uh, where yeah we went through every every line of source code of every tool utility customer facing internal facing uh, piece of code in our code base. And, um, I was really amazed by, by how many things that they, they picked out from the standpoint of, oh, this, you know, this little subfunction snippet among millions of lines of code, because we had a large code base that had been developed since 2005 or prior. Uh, so over 10 years, um, it picked out, oh, this is from this particular, uh, stack overflow. That's the website I was trying to think of. This uh, came from this particular stack overflow posting or came from this particular, um, uh, this particular uh, GitHub repository, as an example, and so so yeah, absolutely went went through that and went in detail on licensing and the the appropriate use of of licensing. I'm happy that I didn't send you down a, a rabbit hole that was just a, a time sink for no yeah. no purpose. So yeah, no, it's a super super valuable utility, and I think I think the coders, the developers of the future, are going to understanding fundamentals and there's there's uh there's someone I'm I'm helping to mentor on on this as well. I was talking to him about this yesterday because he's been digging into Python and learning Python, pandas, numpy. Uh he's just started a a boot camp at University of Oregon uh going through all of this this development and going through you know solving syntax problems. In fact, there's a really awesome website uh called codewars.com where you can solve coding problems they have they're called katas and so you can do these katas that are at you know varying levels of difficulty you can select your level of difficulty and you can punch your way through python javascript ruby whatever whatever languages uh, you speak and they support you have a number of problems that are solved and it was it was fun because i've been helping them with these these uh, code wars problems because they would bring up different fundamental issues uh, of of understanding of how various constructs within programming work, and in one of the YouTube videos I watched on GitHub Copilot, showed the example of here's a code wars problem: change this string of Roman numerals into actual numbers, like change the you know MCMXCIV into 1994, whatever it is, right? Sure. Yeah. And um, and so he started typing out just in English that problem in his uh. IDE in his development environment and his editor and the answer to the problem just appeared right below courtesy of GitHub Copilot. And so as I was talking to, to this buddy of mine yesterday on uh, who I've been helping to mentor on programming, I, I emphasized it's important to understand the fundamentals. It's important to understand the interrelationship of the various silos of programming your database sql your you know your middleware your your json and restful uh, apis your web services and your your user layer your ux user experience and the various uh libraries that are used there whether it's you know jquery or it's it's you know your react uh framework or your your um uh angular framework uh for for doing all of your your uh ui ux Understanding those fundamentals and how they interrelate is going to be way more important, way more fundamentally important 
than remembering syntax, being an encyclopedia yeah. of syntax or having to having to Google search. And it's going to speed up development considerably. And I suggest any anyone that's aspiring to be a developer, learn a language because learning a language, especially like Python or Go or Ruby or um, even C Sharp or Java. Yeah, <laughs> I don't like Java, but but even <laughs> Java, um, it's uh, it's that's a vehicle for learning fundamentals, and it's really important to understand those those fundamentals. Um, but don't get caught up on this whole idea that you have to memorize syntax because that's that was gone with Google. Like you you haven't had right. to memorize syntax for a long time with with good Google searching, understanding fundamentals that you search Google effectively and read the documentation for language effectively. But uh, at this point that Google searching is being shortened to within your ID, within your uh, tool that you're using, uh, you're going to have those answers at your fingertips. The important piece is understanding those, those fun fundamentals. So for new developers, I highly suggest after learning a language and learning some fundamentals via that language, learn how to use Copilot because Copilot is, I haven't dug into it. Um, that's my plan for today and, and the rest of this week. But I imagine that there are a number of keyboard shortcuts. There are a number of of nuances to how to actually use the tool because it is a tool, right? Um, yeah. There are going to be nuances to how to use it that uh, that will be exponential multipliers in your your efficiency, your quality of work output, etc. And I even saw yeah. for the for the uh, uh, the, the YouTube video that this guy was showing the use of, of, uh, copilot copilot even writes test cases. You can say, okay, I want, you know, for the sub function, I want some assert, assert test cases. And it even rattled out those, those sub functions. Bam. Yeah. You know, I was, I was thinking about it, that if, if this, if the promise lives up, well, yeah, if, if the actual function lives up to the promise that there there are going to be two types of programmers. Mm -hmm. um, those who utilize Copilot well, and those who don't have work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's going like to that's, it's, it's just, it's going to be a game changer. Like you're, you're going to be able to do five, 10 times the amount of another um, coder. And it's not because you want, you know, you're the genius and, and the other person is just, you know, a standard, standard guy that got a degree to community college or whatever. No, it's, it's, it's one of those game-changing tools. And this is an example of AI not disrupting work necessarily, but giving you giving you more. Um, because look, I, I look at this. Back when I was doing um, my programming work, um, it seemed to me that hardware was way, way ahead of, of where um, software was. Software was clunky and inefficient and um, all kinds of, you know, data throughput issues. It's a lot of what my work was, was performance engineering on giant databases and, and the software systems, you know, trying to get data out of it. Um, but now, like, it's like software is finally catching up um, in its capability and and kind of being on equal par with, with um, how powerful the hardware is. Uh, but this right now, it's like, oh, great. Well, we could take that one step further where no, it's not all the same people could be out there programming and even more, right? More and more coders. Um, but but in this kind of realm where you've, 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 you've 10x your capability, there's still plenty of work. 
<laughs> for everybody. It's not like the AI is going to disrupt this industry and they're also going to be a whole bunch of coders, you know, sitting in their mom's basement uh, without a job. I don't mm -hmm. think that's what's happening. No, no, because the coders are going to become orchestrators <clears throat> because you yeah. still need an orchestrator to, to convert the business vision into, into the, um, the thing that needs to be made and then maintain that thing that needs to be made and update it, know where the files are stored and how to interface with GitHub and how to work with other developers and how to make appropriate, good God, estimation, like estimating time to time to completion. Now, yeah. Copilot's going to disrupt all those estimations because it's going <laughs> to shorten, I think, time on on a lot of, of, um, of uh, what would you call it? Day-to-day um, -day coding. Mm -hmm. uh, but good God, even even for innovation, even for innovation work. So, you know, it's funny. I remember we uh, the development team that did all of our core video analytics and wrote all the, you know, the CNNs for doing the image analysis and character OCR and face finding and all of the various uh, forms of, of image matrix math that were being done. They worked on you know thousands hundreds of thousands of, of lines of code to uh to do a, solve a variety of problems one of the problems that they solved was a problem for photo bucket um actually let me talk about a different one was a problem for kla 10 core which will be a little closer to, to to jason's heart um and it was uh the ability to uh do correct defect classification and so what defect classification is is when you're making a computer chip you make them on a wafer full of computer chips you make you know hundreds of chips at a time and as this wafer of computer chips is being made it's being photographed at various stages to see if there are any issues if there are any little flakes of copper that accidentally landed on the on the chip and exploded and and uh blew a hole through the trenches that are supposed to allow for electricity to pass through and these photos are very detailed high resolution images at a very small scale which means there are tens if not hundreds of thousands of photos taken of a single wafer of a single group of a few hundred computer chips and for a human to look through them there were various uh steps that were taken previously that i'm sure jason can speak more to because he was he got to, to witness this in real time uh there were ways that were uh, applied to try and minimize the number of images that a human would have to look at but a human would still have to look at a lot of images well this this uh this algorithm that our, our development team uh created uh, had an incredibly high accuracy at finding images that showed defects, that showed issues of every type that Kaylee had seen through their their history of doing uh, defect imaging, of doing uh, wafer imaging. And I remember talking with my mentor uh, about uh, who who was who was part of this this process and part of our company about um, the innovation that was that was done and and he said out of the millions of you know hundreds of thousands of lines of code that were provided for this project um the reason that they could do it and they could do it so quickly was boiled down to something that could be found that you could write out on a single sheet of paper it was a novel idea of using mathematics in a in a particular order to accomplish the solution of this problem and so you know, as I think about Copilot and as I think about the application of this to, to innovation, 
even the ability to to uh, quickly write out you know 10 lines of code that you would otherwise have to type that do one little step that you know is important before the next step that you know is important before the next step that you know is important the time savings even on doing little five 10 line bundles of of code where you the orchestrator know the order that it needs to go in like that's that's helping you that's not replacing you the the yeah. human is still very much a part of it and i can see even for the case of innovation where you are innovating some novel way to iterate through a matrix or some novel way to um you know to subsample to find someone's preferences of what kind of movies they like so you can show them recommendations on netflix like regardless of the innovation the ability to more quickly get five to 10 to 20 lines of code printed onto your page. So you can then try it and see, does it work? Cause there's a lot of, Oh, right. let me try this light bulb. Let me do it a thousand more times. Um, I, th I think it's going to be a, uh, it's going to greatly accelerate the ability to produce code software products for the world, for people and for what they want to do. I'm really excited to see how refined it is for web three coding because i didn't see solidity as a language that's supported ah, uh, but there yeah. are libraries for javascript there's the web three library for javascript and for python that uh that allow for things like wallet connect and allow for things like um transaction submittal and smart contract integration i'm really curious to see how well refined the 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 web three stuff is because this could greatly accelerate the development of of tools for web three which well, is solidity's yeah, yeah, right. No, no, I know. Solidity is a varying language, though, right? I mean, I, mm -hmm. was it was it created a lot like in parallel with with Ethereum uh, twenty fourteen release, or was was it something that came much later, like twenty eighteen or something like that? Um, I know they had smart tr contract capability built into Ethereum at the beginning, but I don't know what in what capacity. Yeah, yeah, I know they had um, composability, uh, the ability to write code into smart contracts on release that was part of the initial vision yeah uh the codes refined over time i don't know at what point they opened it up to public access i don't know at one point they opened up their public test net and i haven't followed the the version history of mm -hmm. um of the various releases but like what, what i can say is as a as an experienced developer with no understanding or experience with solidity uh, last year, digging into what is Solidity and actually doing some Solidity coding, it's one of the best documented languages I've seen in a long time. Like mm -hmm. it's it's right up there with Python or C sharp. It's a really well documented language. The Ethereum main page that links to all the Solidity documentation uh, has a a broad coverage of very important concepts in coding. So not only the the uh, not only do they have the typical language reference, but they have a, a long list of examples of this is what you're trying to do. This is how you do it. Like my favorite, favorite O'Reilly programming books that I got the most value of, like, like earmarked left and right with, 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 you know, all kinds of creases and pages and bookmarks were the cookbooks. Like the Perl cookbook, the PHP cookbook, the C Sharp cookbook. I learned way more from the cookbooks than I did from the desktop references. And within the Solidity documentation that the Ethereum Foundation links to, they have their own cookbook that has a variety of code examples of how you do things. Not only that, something that is vitally important 
within the context of dealing with currency is understanding all of the past hacks or all of the past exploits, all of the past ways that people have extracted uh, either uh, taken over a wallet or extracted funds from a wallet or extracted funds from a from a bridge as has been more common in the last mm-hmm. few years. They have within the Solidity documentation links to code analysis tools that look for, are you doing your ordering? Because so many of the exploits have been related to a developer not having, not paying attention to detail of the ordering of operations where something will compile and it will complete and the you will get the result that you want. But the steps by which it went, there is an opportunity for someone else to craft their own transaction and run their own transaction that gives them access to your smart contract and access to your wallet and then allows them to drain the funds from your wallet just by ordering one statement after another. And so within the Solidity documentation, not only do they cover an incredible amount on the uh, practical application to their cookbook section and have their reference, which is your typical desktop reference, but they have links to tools that do code analysis to find potential vulnerabilities, as well as uh, companies that provide code analysis and code auditing, which is something if you're going to production with code, if you're if you're developing in Web3 and you're developing smart contracts and you're going to be dealing with any amount of money more than, you know, a, a few hundred dollars, it is very much worth it's It's a sticker shock. You know, maybe it's 20K. Yeah. You know, maybe it's $20,000 you got to pay for this, this audit. But that's going to save you in the end. Like when you're ready to 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 finalize your code and go to production, do the audit. Anyway, well, that's think about it though. That's that's cheaper than having a dedicated one dedicated quality assurance person yeah. on your payroll for a year who who is also a very solid programmer to be able to 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 do all of the use cases, test cases, and then dig into what's actually causing the errors, like. Yeah. 20k sticker shock is not much at that point we're dealing with cock punch cock punch all right well he only has 5555 of these cock punch nfts right so the allow list alone they might all be gone and then who knows what that wait list is you may have to buy this this afternoon or this evening at at 2x someone may just do a quick flip and you're going to have to buy this for 0.8 ETH instead of 0.3. Yeah, exactly. Mint has been live for three minutes. It's now 10.03 a.m. Uh, they're more than halfway gone. Only 2,516 out of 5,550. Oh, 2,412 yeah. out of 5,555 are left. Yeah. Yeah, so we're not getting them. Not on the, we're not getting the first mint. We'd have to buy on the secondary market. Yeah. And, and look, uh, to be clear, uh, Tim is not making money off of the initial sales. All of all of the proceeds, you know, what, what is that? 0.3 ETH times 5,000 of these things. It, it's it's a few million dollars, right? Four million dollars. I, I, I did the calculation previously, but I don't remember. Yeah, it's about two million. Yeah. With ETH at a price, I just did ETH at 1,200. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, one one million nine hundred ninety nine thousand. So yeah, it's two million. Okay. So that all is going to the Saise Foundation, right? right. For psych- psychedelic, uh, you know, mental health research. Mm-hmm. 
And so it totally makes sense that he would have lists to maximize the probability that these would mint extremely fast because it, it the, the worst possibility would be to say 1000 of these sell and it takes three weeks for the rest of them. So like that, that would be bad for someone trying to, to create, you know, a funding for, for, for a foundation. Uh, he also yeah. makes money off of the secondary sales, right? The royalties. That's right. Um, and that will go to basically pay him back for all of the money that he's put into this project ahead of time, which he said in his podcast was um, with, with um, Kevin Rose was equal to all of the ro- book royalties he's made on all of his books in the last year. Right. That's his main income. Was- I thought it was related to, or it was uh, equivalent to all the royalties he made on all of his books over all time. I don't think so. I okay. think I think it was in the last year. Um, I initially thought what you were thinking, but I I I, I feel like I rewound um, while I was listening to that because I was I was really curious. Like, wait, yeah, because that's a lot. That would be a lot of money. He would have spent millions of dollars at that point because he's gotcha. you know, he well, started writing his books back in the mid 2000s. So, yeah. Um, and they're best, best sellers. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, but he was using that as a point just to say how little money our authors make on books as well. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. But I, it was the last year and, and for an author of his stature, um, it's still significant, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so yeah, fine. I get it. Even on secondary sales, there may be a weird, crazy flip market and, you may be hard pressed to get a cock punch at, at you know, eight ETH. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's the concern is, you know, going to look later today. Oh yeah. They're already listing at 1.1 ETH on OpenSea. The floor price is 1.1 ETH. Ah, well, yeah, now the floor that... price is 1.2 ETH. <laughs> well, if you, <laughs> I doubt they're going to go lower than that. So if you really wanted to buy one, you might want to buy one right now on the secondary market because I doubt you're going to get a mint. N- me too, right? I mean, that's I'm not talking about us both. I did hear that he said um, the blue balls trait was um, was extremely rare. <laughs> the blue balls trait is super rare. Yeah, that is funny and highly coveted. He said and highly yeah, coveted. So- <laughs> oh man, I don't know why that's um, highly coveted. That sounds, exactly. <laughs> sounds like uh, something you would not want. <laughs> that's right. Well, in this case, he's he's flipping he's flipping those cocks on their shafts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, the memes. Oh, uh, yeah. The memes. Um, what is that top? The top floppy part. The the like the, the red skin that the the, the rooster that the rooster has. <laughs> But it's, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't think that's called foreskin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you were, you know, you are pointing the top ah. of your bald head, and I got a visual, and I understand. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you sad? Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm happy for Tim. Glad to see the launch is going well. I'm sad to not get a cock punch for 0.3 ETH. Yeah. yeah, it's not going to happen. Still, I mean, if you, if you, that's what I said, if we really, truly, you and I wanted to get them right now, the, the thing would be get on, you know, uh, 
OpenSea or another marketplace um, and pick one up that someone's flipping. And I know he didn't really want to see that, but um, there's just no way to stop it. Yeah, there is no way to... No way Not to with the mechanics of how NFTs work. That's the beauty of the NFT. Um, it's so simple for someone to purchase it and sell it immediately. It's it's a lot more liquid, very easy to list for secondary sales. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and they're they're flying around on the secondary market as well. I'm watching them just bounce around. So that means I'm going to move some ETH around and uh, see if I can get myself punched in the cock with a much higher price cock punch. I'm so sorry. Yeah. We're dealing with cock punch. Cock punch. All right. 